funny thing is that uh, we always complain that I talk over the music and last week we said that just after the intro and last week I cut out the talking over the music because um, it was nonsense and so that's why I'm talking over the entire intro here right now to make up for the fact that last week we had a very logical error in there um, about our intro. <laughs> What, what was that? There was actually an error, or you just cut no, stuff just out? Like, I, I cut out the things that I said over the, the intro because they made no sense and I didn't want it to be in there. But then the first thing we said after the intro stop was like, ah, oh, we're always talking over the intro. And I said, I make a point in talking over the intro. Um, but the intro was absolutely clean last week. Um, I think I like it clean, honestly. <laughs> too bad. How is life going for you, Yarm? Have you self isolated? um sort of um i mean i'm a parent at home right now so i don't really have a lot of social contacts the few things that we uh, d did go to in the past like the class with the with the baby like it was swimming and the thing where he could run around um both of them are canceled now obviously mm -hmm. so we don't go there we cancel the meeting with friends because i think it's also good to like not mix sort of contact groups of people that are not that often in contact so um so we, we yeah, you should that. um you can ultimately like end up isolating with more than just you and your partner but you should make sure that you're all isolating in a kind of closed off group that you're yeah. not like yeah spreading and so that's it like i have very limited contact um i think my biggest exposure is when i go shopping and for some reason the other day when i, I had to get some supplies um the store was completely crowded with really old people but much more dense than it usually is it felt like for whatever reason they all had to go around this time when when i went there and it felt weird because they are the at-risk group and we would sort of think it would be smart to spread out your shopping so you well, I, don't, I don't know if they coordinated. I don't think like all the no, old I people just they know they each other and like. Group or whatever. I mean, <laughs> firstly, but they don't know what WhatsApp is, but I mean, I don't think they like dialed up on the old-fashioned telephone like. Brr, 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 brr. <laughs> I'm like okay, I don't think they did that either. I think it's just like that's when they're free or awake or. Yeah, but I yeah. don't know. Old people call in and tell us what time you like to go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was probably the time when I had the most contact to people, um, and it was the people that were at risk and not me. Like <laughs> they were locked in with me, and I wasn't locked in with them. That was the sort of point there. Um, but apart from that, yeah, I have one like weird thing coming up now. Like uh, my my mother in law, who lives in the same building as we do, it's. It's a separate flat, but still we, we share uh, like common washing machines and stuff like that. So we have contact. And um, she just she was supposed to go on a three-week trip to South America, and it was cut short because of the uh, virus crisis. And she's, about, she's coming back now, and because it was um, cut short, the, the travel wasn't as easy as well. She, they had like a layover in Madrid for a while, and then... Um, now I think she's in Frankfurt and then she'll take a train here. But so she will be locked in. She was locked in in like two different planes in a, on a train on a, in a hotel with a lot of random strangers. And like, I don't know how I should react now. Should I sort of quarantine and like reduce interaction with her only from a distance until we know that she... Yeah, she's not a carrier. That she's that she didn't get the disease, and it's really weird to to have to think these these thoughts to wonder like, oh, there's somebody coming back. Should I treat them? 
like a quarantine I mean, should i keep like my distance and the super objective cold ways if you want to be safest yes she should stay away from you for 14 days but yeah probably the reality is you're not going to do that just because society but yeah. then i mean probably sh- you're still more of a risk to her than she is to you like i mean it's not yeah i mean she's definitely in the risk group but like like i could get it from public transport but i actually haven't used public transport in a while i mm. reduced my shopping like yesterday i had to go through the city and i i used my bike to yeah be not being closed in like a tube with other people um yeah i guess probably you've been kind of how long have you been kind of quarantining for like what's the probably like a week easily that we reduced yeah but then uh, you could have still yeah i you could, could still, still be quite a, i could still be a carrier like I, i'm i'm still not clear but um yeah it's know. it's I weird it's really weird things that you have to think about now and find your own solution and have to balance out sort of the objective truth which is separation is better than taking chances but also then you have like the entire like emotional question that comes up with this is like saying telling her when she comes and it's like hey can i see my my grandson and we're like no actually you shouldn't for another two weeks and that's really weird i feel like that's anyway not your problem because it's not your mother it's your mother-in-law so that's the problem that your wife can work it out (laughs) (laughs) that seems to me like i don't want to be the one in the discussions with in-laws that's somebody else's problem (laughs) but i say that as somebody like very willing to tell my own parents no like this is objectively not okay but yeah i think most people are less okay with that with their parents yeah yeah how are you doing how are you holding up I had a bit of a panic last week about the whole corona thing because it's getting a big deal in London. Um, but the good news for me is that my work is responding really positively and my boss is super awesome and very like human about everything as far as this goes, which is really what you want in a boss. Um, and I realized I had to kind of do some things from like admin stuff. So when you come to the UK as a foreigner, you have to register at a GP before you can get like a national health insurance number. And it took me a little while to work that out. So I kind of realized last Wednesday I hadn't done that yet. And that was a bit concerning because I have some lung problems myself. So I wanted that if something does happen with Corona, that will be on my record in the country where I currently live in. Even though I don't think it has anything that's going to happen with Corona, I just was like, yeah, I should be a mature safe. adult and make sure that like my medical records are actually in my country. Um, but then I dealt with that and then I bought a bicycle so I would not have to travel on the public transport as much. Um, and honestly, I'm very, very lucky. So I can work from home at the moment. So I'm basically continuing my life as normal, but staying inside my house. which is. And yeah. do you feel like you're getting, you're going crazy from being inside all the time? I think I'm definitely like going to get quite fat because... I'm bored like like I'm not moving yeah. physically and I'm not interacting with people so like even at work when you're working quite hard you still have that kind of physical interaction and you're looking at people and here I'm like staring at my computer in a very like small space looking at a wall and a computer so I get up a lot more times during the day to go and get cups of tea so I'm just like drinking liters and liters of tea and then eating crumpets which is basically <laughs> my life now my life is crumpets and tea. Which is also very British, so yeah. I think I should get some sort of citizenship out of this. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, for me, it's it's also, um, although like we have a fairly large place 
and I'm already feeling sort of locked in and I'm really happy when I can go for a walk with the baby and just be outside for a little bit because I just feel like I'm like it's not severe yet but I can feel how it's like creeping up this like if I would really have to go on like a, a 14 day lockdown like I, I know I will struggle. The reality is both of us live in parts of the city where, again, like I have a garden, you live somewhere like that's a fairly big enough house, but we also live in parts of the city where we can go outside without having to interact yeah. with people. So it's not like I'm actually locked in my house. Like I can go outside, I can go for long walks, I can go, I have a reservoir near me, I have like a foresty area. I can go for like many, many miles without having to interact with people. So I really like, yeah, I, I, I tend yeah. to like going to work because I like having that social interaction like with people face to face. Um, but you know what i'm i'm lucky and things are fine and yeah hope all the rest of you guys are hanging yeah. in there okay with everything i mean we're in like both you and i yeah. are in very very privileged positions that we can keep doing our work and like absolutely yeah i have an awesome housemate who's looking after me and we're keeping each other sane so it's very sweet yeah and even if it's hard people please like self-isolate like avoid unnecessary contacts in berlin there is a tendency to downplay these things and um there's people hanging out in parks in larger groups there's uh bars that are supposed to close uh they open f only f with invitations so they actually there are the police reported in some cases they t uh, taped the windows shut that you couldn't look inside um they locked the door and only if you like were pre-announced or if you knocked in a certain way like back in the old days they would open door, the door and let you in which is incredibly ir irresponsible in such a situation to do these things for your own entertainment to gather in crowds um, and yeah potentially risk infection just because you need a drink with a couple of friends in a bar so be, please be responsible don't be these people the fact that like not everybody in in society is able to self-isolate right so the ones who can, you should be doing it just because. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. And so to keep you guys entertained, we do our little podcast here and there's many other good podcasts to listen out, uh, out there. Um, this week we're changing up a little bit, um, not too much, but it's just, it was too much to do for us to do like a proper uh, preparation for a paper. So this week we're going to skip the paper of the week. We're really sorry. Um, like, soon there we, will be. Did we discuss this, you and I, yet? 
like have that every second week we do a paper and every other second week we do like our other segments and we just have fun facts around it so that i mean it gets long anyway yeah. so you know we're always playing around with the structure we hope we yeah. find something that works but we still have that feeling that it's not really quite what we want it to be so Yoram's like putting hundreds yeah. of marking tabs on the recording as I'm um, speaking. We're changing like, edit this things out, up. We're trying out a new format, and the new <sighs> thing this week is we skip the paper. Yoram, it's not and nice to edit when this. a lady speaks. It's rude. Sex is bullshit. <laughs> My favorite plant. My favorite plant this week, Tegan, is um, Populus. Uh, tremoloides. Have you heard about this? Populus. It's also called the quaking aspen. Trembling aspen. <laughs> um, so it's it's a relate re, uh, relative to poplar. Um, does the the name pando tell yes. you something? It's something maybe it came up. Um, no. Pando, pando, like panda but with an O. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is uh, a tree. Pando. This is um, uh, yeah a poplar relative um, growing in Pando. northern America. No. And Pando. the interesting thing about this Was tree it is no, that no it grows in these these uh, clonal colonies. So uh, the root system is connected between all of the individual trees, and new trees are sort of sprouts from the same root system, which means that they're all genetically identical. They're all clones uh, from each other, and um, this led to the largest organism on earth the largest and oldest organism on earth which is actually not a tree but a whole forest of trees that are all connected through the root system and that are all genetically identical and this and this one specific location they're called pando like this one organism is called pando Um, it's estimated to be around eighty thousand years old and i think somewhere i had the number um for the uh, the way because it's also the biggest because of all the biomass that it accumulated um it's uh, ver- uh, very large and very heavy but i i think yeah i didn't copy the number down but it's it's very big it's very heavy um and yeah i when i read about this i i wondered if clone is actually the right word for it because if you look at like popular science articles are about it it says all of these trees are clones to each other but as they are still mm-hmm. connected to each other i think they're rather just one big organism that's not really clones it has just yeah, like kind of more shoots that grow into like actual trees but it's yeah, still it's definitely bringing into question when you consider yourself to be an individual and when you're part yeah. of a whole right like what is yeah. what makes something an individual yeah um i think like if you could remove it if you could cut it off and it would be perfectly okay then it should be an individual is it only an individual if you cut it off is it already an individual if it's still connected but it could be cut off i don't know that's that's why i think that this seems like a philosophical question the term clonal colony is much more fitting than um, just saying that there are clones because when I think of clones I think of like two like separate beings Mm. that share the same genetic material Um, well these are not separate beings but anyway so this is a very large um, the thing that's a little bit sad about this is now like with so many things it's dying it's dying um 
and researchers don't really know why and the, they could rule out or they couldn't identify yet a common pest they couldn't identify like a fungal uh, disease or insects or anything um, and they rather think it's a combination of several factors that uh, result in in the fact that it can't regenerate anymore because usually um, poplar as a genus um, and and also the the aspen trees they're quite quickly growing and quite quickly regenerating mm -hmm. but um, because of human intervention because there is more and more tourism in the area and paths that are built and hiking and cabins and infrastructure that's built that sort of puts a pressure on on this uh, ecosystem um, then there's also grazing animals for that are used by humans that go through there and that eat off all the emerging green bits mm -hmm. um, that make it much harder for the uh, trees to actually yeah, regenerate. And um, these things combine and maybe also like some climate change Im impacts and so on uh, make it that at the moment uh, it's declining in, in size and it's, it's dying off. There were some statements that um, they isolated some areas and protected them and they, in these areas they could very quickly recover the, um, the regeneration abilities and it, could, like, it would uh, do much better very quickly again. So chances are that if we mm. would put energy into conserving this this does, one big organism we could actually manage to to do that it does bring the question of like does it lose some of its value if it like i mean its value now one of its unique things is how big it is if you if 80 of it dies but the other 20 of it is fine how much of its value does it lose does it like it's a good I question mean, it's still there it's, it's still just, there um, it's also not um as uh what's it, like a threatened species it's it's not extinct um actually you find it uh if you look at the map where you can find it it's all over from like uh, the central u.s up north to, to canada where these trees are growing so if there's one big organism if the whole thing would die you would still have all of the other trees um and it it's very possible that the whole thing could die because if you imagine they're all genetically identical, so there is literally no di diversity in there. If a disease would come that could uh, effectively attack these trees, it could just spread like wildfire throughout the whole organism because there is no adaptation, there's no di diversity in there that like individuals could be more resistant to a pest than... Uh, like that grow next to each other like one could have like a slight advantage through random mutations and then you have like the whole selection pressure um, in there anything that could kill one tree can kill the entire forest of trees it sounds like now it's quite interesting also as a biological indicator yeah. right so it's sort of the fact that pando is dying people are saying well does this mean that we are doing something wrong and therefore has that extra value of being this kind of canary as a final thing um there are a couple of other species that also had formed these clonal colonies um and uh, there's something that's called the humongous fungus <laughs> which mm -hmm. is this, this i heard of yeah an individual it actually sounds like it should it should have been on the fish podcast um, but I can't remember if I heard anything about it there. But humongous fungus is a very good name for an individual of the fungal species uh, Amelaria solidipes in Oregon, um, which I think it's an, an underground fungus uh, that, that grows over an area of about 965 hectares. But I have, I, to be honest, I don't know what a hectare is. Is it like 100 <laughs> by 100 meters or something? But No, I think it's one of these old-fashioned 
Um, like yeah. arbitrary measurements, I have no idea, honestly. Yeah, it's over 2,000 acres, but I also don't know what an acre is. Um, <laughs> well, that makes it a lot clearer. Like, there's no, like, in brackets, there is room like, for how a many horse football to roam fields. Free. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and there's a couple others. Um, so, they're like a colony of seagrass that's that's clonally identical and so on. So, yeah, it's, it's something that actually happens uh, fairly often and it's not always easy to discover because. Yeah, you don't really... They're often connected by the root tissue and that's something that's really hard to see out in the wild if they actually share the same root system. So you actually have to go in there and take samples and do PCR tests or whatever to figure out if they have exactly the same genetic code or if they um, diverge. Yeah, last week actually I talked about the giant walled sunflower which was had the same thing where it looked like individuals and then it turned out that they were all kind of just clonal copies of the same plant. These might have been still like separated. I'm not sure if they were joint at the roots, but it did mean that there was way less genetic diversity in that population, which means, as you said, there's a there's a huge risk that you can lose them all in one fell swoop. Yeah. So that is the... Um, the organism called Pando, which is made of the species Populus trimuloides, or the quaking aspen or trembling aspen, uh, found in Northern America. And it's my turn this week. Um, this week I'm talking about Ethel Sargent. So um, she was born in 1863. She died at the end of the war, or just before the end of the First World War in 1918. And she was a British botanist. And if you go to her Wikipedia page, you can see that there's basically less than a page worth of information about her. And I had a quick look around the web and it was quite find, hard to find more detailed descriptions of what she did with her life. But even from this very short Wikipedia page, you can see that she did some quite amazing things. So her description is she was a British botanist who studied um, cytology and also plant morphology with a focus on the development of monocots as opposed to dicots so monocots are like your grasses and things like that um but she was also one of the first female members of the Linnaean society so this is just like one of the oldest and most prestigious botanical um biological societies in the world so one of the first females there so represent well done and she was also the first female in their council so again like really a huge honor and at the same time, she was the president of the Federation of University Women, which is something which was developed at the start of the war as a way to promote females getting education across Europe and also the US. And it still exists today with the aim of trying to get women to get um, basic education beyond just primary school education. So this is a really amazing thing. And then finally, at the end of her life, she was also involved in... Um, in organizing the registry of university women qualified to do work of national importance. So this was basically trying to get together um, women who could help in the war effort or could help like mm -hmm. um, keep the company, the, the country, sorry, stable, I believe, in, in the time of the First World War, which was then taken over by the Ministry of Labor. So hmm. already like some really, really important things that she did during her life. Um, but I want to also mention something a little bit separate. So... I did manage to find an actual a journal publication about her, which was published in 1968. Mm. Um, and it's just called A List of Published Works of Agnes Arbor, who is another um, famous botanist, female botanist. Um, E.A.N. Arbor, who I believe is the husband of Agnes, um, Edward Alexander Arbor, and Ethel Sargent. And these three are linked because Ethel Sargent actually 
Um, well, Agnes worked for Ethel for some time. And this has a little bit more information we'll share in the show notes. It just talks a little bit more about Ethel's life. Um, and I wanted to mention one part in particular, which is that she got her education um, and she actually got her education because she was in a college which was kind of um, led by another really powerful female who was um, interested in, in, in women's education. So this is Frances Mary Bush. We might talk about her at another stage. Um, but then at one stage, she basically had to return home. And this was because her mother and um, her sister needed caring for. So I think um, her sister had some developmental problems and she basically was the one who was in charge of caring for both her mother and sister. So because of this, um, she had to be in the home. Before that, I think I think it was before that she had worked in uh, Kew Gardens or maybe after that time. But then she actually, because of some, I think, um, financial privilege that she had in her life, she developed a small lab at her mother's home cool. so that she could kind of divide her time between her caretaking duties and her academic pursuits. And I thought this was particularly relevant in current times of yes. coronavirus, um, that she kind of managed to find this this physical space, but also this kind of um, separation, but like kind of joining and separation of her two different aspects of things that she had to do with her life. And that kind of allowed other people within her community, her physical community, so other young women around her to interact with this small, like in a small lab environment that she had and also learn things. And there's a quote here saying that um, the laboratory was rather a puzzle to the neighborhood, um, basically because she was like doing things like um, she had a distillery because she wanted to have distilled water, so very pure water without um, mineral contaminants. But of course they thought that she was making alcohol with her distillery. Um, <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so she did some really important work, um, mainly on looking at monocots and how they evolved um, rel relative to dicots. But as I said, she also has these really important roles in um, yeah, female education and just in general in the, bi uh, in the biology community. So she seems quite cool. I have one more quote I wanted to read for, which is that... Um, she examined specimens for the sole purpose of collecting knowledge and she had little patience for researchers who embarked on what she considered prejudicial research performing for the purpose of sustaining preconceived theories, which is kind of what we aim for as, as scientists, right? To do science yeah. without like wanting to prove something, although it's generally not the case because we're all flawed human beings. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's um, Ethel Sargent. So we'll put some links to the information about her, especially um, the paper which was a little bit harder to find yeah let's talk 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 about bias 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 yeah this week it's it's my turn um and i'm also doing a very topical um topic <laughs> i chose <laughs> the bias the, the normalcy bias or normality bias and um it's actually very quickly t t uh, told the story is that we tend to assume that everything will st stay normal despite everything around us falling apart despite impeding do impending doom we are still saying like ah this is fine this will be normal and we can't really wrap our heads around the idea that something will break normality and it's around 70% of people that are very 
uh, prone to have this bias. And um, we've seen that. Wait, wait, wait. It's quantified? People can say like 70% of people have this and, and the other 30 have it less or how? I... Uh, it's during a disaster, around 70% of the people show reactions that li are linked to this n bias of normalcy. Oh, so wow. you have the okay. idea that there's a warning about a hurricane coming and um, people can't imagine that it will break the normality of their lives. And so they tend to stay much longer in the danger zone than they should be. They uh, don't stock up on food, they don't prepare, they don't react properly because they yeah on a on a mental level can't really grasp the idea that something will change and change for the worst and um this happens through like different through different times and different contexts um there were when when the mount vesuvius the, the volcano in italy erupted there were people still at home in the dangerous zone looking at the erupting volcano and not moving away because they th they thought it probably won't it will probably be okay it probably won't affect them mm -hmm. um they when fukushima the big disaster happened in the nuclear power plant the uh, engineers there thought um it it won't happen that three different reactors melt at the same time it's just not normal so it won't happen um mm. and we see this now with the reaction at least in germany there are there's definitely a fraction of the population that just doesn't accept the idea that something breaks their normality right now that's something that I they mean, have to react that they have to said do something that, like 99 of the german population is stocking up on toilet paper so like there's this weird like yeah. half panic and half normalcy response right i mean people are changing their behavior in certain ways maybe just not in all of the ways right yeah yeah they're reacting in, in, in some ways but not they don't do the full proper reaction that is necessary uh or they don't they downplay the things like buying more things is very natural to us so it's it sort of gives you the the feeling that you can have an impact and you don't really have to change like it doesn't change your daily life if you just have like 10 times as much toilet paper at home um but it changes your life if you can't go outside, if you can't go to bars, if you can't hang out with friends. So they do the thing that's that's easily because that's still that can still fit in the idea of normality, but they don't do the thing that breaks normality. Um, and so yeah, we see that a lot, and it's it's actually quite hard to yeah to to fight it. They in the, on the Wikipedia article they say that there's a hypo, hypothesized cause for it. Um, that even when the brain is, brain is calm, it takes 8 to 10 seconds to process new information. And so when we have stress, this slows this even uh, slows this down even more. And so we can't find an acceptable response for a situation, for in a stressful situation. And so we just default to the normal reaction. We just default to like, we keep doing what we're doing because our brain just can't handle dealing with this right now. We can't figure out what to do. Uh, I do find the, the, the break between 8 to 10 seconds and then like 8 to 10 days a little bit hard to explain physiologically though, right? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Like if it's a... Uh, but maybe it's, it's not like, like a slowing down at that point. It's like a rejection of the, yeah. the change. Yeah, and for the prevention, they give here like four points that you can do to prevent this. But 
I don't really now know. I don't really know if this works. There's like the first thing is like preparation, publicly acknowledge the possibility of a disaster, and form contingen uh, contingency plans. Then warning with like clear ooh, issues. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. So, I've told you my zombie apocalypse theory for Germany, right? No. What is your theory I think for I have, Germany? I think I'm, I'm ranting about this all the time. So in, in Germany, the trains are always on time. I mean, if you ask a German, they'll say absolutely that's not true. But that's because people have like a very high expectation of how well the trains run. And in any other country, basically, you don't have those expectations. But generally, the train system works quite well, I would say. Yeah. Um, so it's my theory that because things like this work very well in like central Berlin society or German society people will deal very poorly when things stop working well. So yeah. they're not adaptable because they're so used to things being normal. Whereas people who live in more chaotic um, systems are more likely, like they, they're more likely to have a, a plan B or like, you know, yeah. to expect that things don't go the way they are. So my theory is that like, because of this, the German government deliberately breaks Deutsche Bahn trains at certain points just so that the German population becomes used to having some expectation in in their lives. So it's not that Deutsche Bahn is shitty. It's like your train is, is late or like has been cancelled because German government wants that when the zombies come or like when actual real things happen in the world, the German population is a little bit more adapted. So that's <laughs> like preparing the population by breaking the trains occasionally. That's, that sounds like a good good plan. I don't really know if I would assume that our current government is able to come up with such a good and thought-through plan and that they have I that mean, much self-awareness. I mean, I could come up with it, so I feel like if I could work it out, um, I think it could be done, Yarm. <laughs> Angela has a PhD. But, but it's true that like the contingency plans and things, um, we don't... As at least for, from my from my experience, we didn't really communicate what to do in in a case, in a scenario like we experience right now. So people are panicking to an extent because they they don't know what's happening. I mean, nobody really knows what's happening. But there's also like I know that like the the CDC in the US they they have sort of a script, they have a plan that that's something how you would react to a pandemic situation, mm -hmm. and. Um, this is this wasn't communicated at least in Germany. I guess these plans must exist as well somewhere, but they were not communicated in a way that people could rely on this. That they know, oh, there's there's a plan. There has been like it felt like a lot of the information was happening like by the hour. Politicians decided on new measures what they wanted to take. In in Berlin, there was a lot of discussion. Just like throughout the day, in the morning they said they would not close the playgrounds, and then during the day they changed their opinion to actually let's close all the playgrounds. And mm -hmm. this is very symptomatic for many of the responses that we have, which go. But I think that's like I disagree. I think that's kind of a general world thing that like as the problem progresses, you should make more measures. And this has happened. Like even the World Health um, Organization, yeah. they deliberately held off calling it pandemic until it got to like what they can officially classify as a pandemic because it's like calling it early is actually not helpful like you should be absolutely careful but at the same time saying pandemic before it's pandemic might not be yeah the better scenario right yeah yeah I, absolutely um in in this playground case it's just like in pretty much all of germany they closed the playgrounds i think last night or something and berlin was mm -hmm. like oh no no we're gonna hold out like it's important that we keep them open for a while and during the day they change and it gives you this feeling that they 
Yeah, they don't have this contingency plan. They don't have a script. Mm. They don't have an idea. Well, they I mean, have to like react on a very short term. And while I can completely understand why this is the case and on a sort of conscious level, I also agree with this. Like you have to take new information in, process it and react accordingly. But if it comes to this like prevention of this bias, this prevention of this normalcy bias, what you need is you have to give the image that before stuff goes down, you have a good solid plan of what's happening. So people trust you and rely on the idea that I like the the statements and announcement and everything follows a structure and we can trust the structure I mean I think yeah I don't know I think this stuff is very hard to to call right um yeah. it's it's less hard the more countries that get have the same problems so I mean it was much harder for China to make decisions on this than it is for us to make decisions now on this um yeah. and by us for some reason I mean the UK but also Australia or Germany any of my my countries um but yeah I mean I've heard people say hey in Italy they tried to close like they tried to stop the country like clo lock shit down when there was 1,000 cases and Germany now has 3,000 cases no they have how many cases do they have I don't know I don't know but uh 12,000 cases now in total in Germany and like they're still not locking shit down. I don't know what the number was for Italy. I, I'm sorry, I've I've got my statistics wrong, but like maybe it was deaths. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but statistics are also hard to find, right? So like this is something weird about Germany. I can't find how many people they've tested compared to like the UK that's available or it was available before Boris made his announcement. I don't know. It's all very a strange it's all a really strange scenario, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it really is. There's and, like And that leads to like it's just really hard to like then overcome biases like this one because like you would have to take like certain measures of transparency and structure and and building trust and giving the image that you know what's happening but nobody knows what's happening it's it's we are in a situation that is uh, unprecedented we didn't really have in a in a world that is built like it is now with globalization a pandemic that happens like this so it's impossible to ask of anybody to give us a clear plan how the next six months will pan out. What will happen in the next six months? What will be the measures that will be that that uh, politics that that governments have to take? And so yeah, and this will then in the end, like coming back to this bias, will just lead to the fact that we have to deal with a certain percentage, maybe seventy percent, maybe less than that, um, of people who really struggle to to deviate from a normal life and this is something that we absolutely have to do right now is deviate from a normal life find ways like of of uh, self-isolation and like flattening the curve all of the things we talked about so um yeah this is just like our brains uh, have trouble dealing with such situations yeah but uh, we're also like quite good at adapting to stuff like in in even the shortish long term right so then yeah. as soon as like people should be able to adapt to the new normal like the new normal being you don't go out and do things as much right like this should be something where yeah yeah there's also an overreaction bias that's sort of the opposite thing that's people <laughs> who from like very small inputs immediately think everything is going to catastrophically fail and in and in disaster paper. responses you have to balance out like work against both of these biases you don't want to be too alarmist because then you have a certain fraction of people like overreacting and going crazy um, actually, I I can lead on for this. I don't know if you have anything else you want to say about the cognitive bias, but there was kind of a similar report about the coronavirus, which was talking about how we should change our, our social norms. And it was actually saying that 
you need to have this um, balance between being like not too crazy, but also being the right amount of neurotic. And they were also discussing how like disgust is kind of a good um, motivation. Like we should be slightly disgusted about the world around us right now because disgust can be really motivating for making us like be, for example, cleaner, washing your hands um, and things like that. Yeah, so yeah. our brains are not making the current situation easier. I think that's something we can learn from this. We have to be very self-aware and reflect about our own reactions, about reactions in society. Figure out how we deal with this. And I don't have a, I don't have a clue or a solution how to deal with this. So let's move on um, to our next segment. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun Yeah, I, I have something which is oh you want to go no 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 I wanted just to say like it feels weird to tell for me to talk about fun stuff because if I look at the list of things um, I think none of them are particularly fun <laughs> so no. I think you have to have a rule that like at least half of them have to be good news items from now on yeah. or like stupid things uh, next week um, I have a <laughs> for next week I have a stupid thing which is like a Tegan's life in London thing yeah. um, the other day I went to the shop um, to buy some food and there was like a pie and mash shop and they had kind of a meat pie oh. which I mean maybe you can't imagine as a German because apparently Germany has not like we don't worked have out that and I'm so sad about it you haven't managed to create meat pies even though like every other country has worked out but some version could. of meat why pie why don't we have that why don't you have them and you have meat i mean you only have pork but you have meat but pork um, pies are delicious like i once like okay, did I like a, a, a british recipe for pork pies and they're so good i like i'm, I'm mostly vegetarian now but pork pies oh they're great yeah i personally disagree i think you're wrong but um this was like a beef pie which is the way it should be no um <laughs> <laughs> but this is um something which actually would like work well in Germany because you know that was a pie and then it had like a ton of like mashed potato like literally if you can imagine kind of a normal Chinese takeaway um, mater uh, container one of those plastic or even like the styrofoam ones it was literally like more than half of that is just like jammed in with <laughs> like mashed potato and then it has a sauce on top of it which is basically like almost a bechamel sauce but without any like flavor so it's just like a kind of um, just like fat and flour sauce. <laughs> not even fat really it's kind of just starch it's like flour like kind of um corn flour that's been like thickened it would it would look really well in like the kind of um company canteen that you imagine so like you know kind of white sauce but this one has parsley in it and the name of the sauce is actually liquor mm -hmm. um which it doesn't have any alcohol in it the name doesn't have anything to do with alcohol but it's originally called either simply liquor uh, sorry other liquor sorry or eel liquor sauce and it was traditionally made using the water kept from the preparation of the stewed eels which is apparently like a normal thing you know like when you stew your eels you have that water left over and then you use it to make this like parsley water sauce which i guess is also why it's kind of like starchy and cloudy because like the eels shat in the water or like i don't know i guess the eels were dead when you stewed them but there's like eel juice in there somehow and then you add this on um but despite how horrible this sounds it's yeah, actually I'm, like i'm, I'm you've looking got at pictures and it doesn't make it better like sometimes you hear about th something and then you look at a picture and you're like oh this actually looks good no no it does not look good <laughs> 
okay so what i'm saying is like here we're like in your standard canteen that you and i have both been to like in the workplace you'd get your mashed potato and your white sauce and then like some meat but what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to add a ton of vinegar on top of the the white sauce and then also salt and even better if the vinegar has chili inside the vinegar so it's like spicy so now you've changed something that's like a kind of a white sauce which basically has no flavor except for parsley and parsley is basically just grass and you've added a little bit of like sourness and you've added a bit of spiciness you've added a bit of salty and you've basically got yourself to that what's it called like acid sugar what's the, the the famous book called oh i i don't know the book i i know it from like um my, a very poor understanding of ayurvedan um uh, cooking that where you combine i think seven things like sweet sour salty spicy uh, bitter and maybe even more okay so that's the thing you've like you've now got umami you've you've got all of them in there because i mean maybe not sweet but you've got like the sour vinegar you've got the spicy from the chili you've got the salt then you've got like this meaty flavor Mm -hmm. and then you've got like the bitter kind of parsley flavor and somehow they're all in there and of course it's also like this really stodgy food and like you mess it all up and it looks like chaos and it's just like warm comfort food so it looks horrible, <laughs> but it was like a really fun experience because it's supposed to also be something that's kind of famous from the, the east end of London. So like the east side, which is kind of I'm living in the northeast now of London. So I went into this pie shop in my neighborhood and the guy's like, yeah, you won't find this anywhere else. And like also if you do find it there, they do it wrong anyway because they're <laughs> serving their mashed potato with like he said, some people do it with an ice cream scoop. You should never have it with an ice cream scoop. It should be done with a spatula. And he's like, you know, smacking this like, yeah. <laughs> But like not even that because it doesn't even make that sound because it's like it's it's already set solid. Like it's in that <laughs> final shape, which it will not change from as it makes its way through your intestines. It's going to stay in that solid shape for like <laughs> eternity and never decompose. Like it's going into the garbage patch in the ocean with the turtles. But this was a very fun experience. So like the guy was really great and super friendly and like happy to explain his culture and like share his stuff with me. And I will definitely be bringing friends back to his shop if they ever come and visit me in East London. Yeah. <laughs> that, so, that, eel sauce. That, that sounds, that actually sounds exciting. I'm really happy to do that one day. If we can travel again at one point, like I, I have no idea if we can travel in six weeks or six months or six years. I have no idea. Um, I guess in a couple of months time, everything will be moving again. I mean, some say that it takes until the vaccine comes and some others say the vaccine takes one and a half years. So, no idea anyway i'm really looking think, forward to um, go to this place because it, it really sounds good i remember when one of the first times i had fish and chips in london i went with some other students um and they they told me that i should ask for the big portion of chips and i think it was literally like a kilogram of like soggy fried potatoes it was mm. just like this insane amount of potatoes that were like hardly salted and you just had starch and starch and starch it um, and fat um, also fat yeah and fat <laughs> and yeah really I, I don't I, I don't want to say unpleasant experience really weird experience because still I mean I like I like chips and the fish was good and so on it's just I would say it's good isolation food. Like, you know what? You're not going to see anybody for the next six weeks. Like, stay indoors and eat some, like, eel sauce on mashed potato. That's the way to go. Yeah. Um, I I have something that you can do if you still work in a lab. 
I know that many people are sent home now and are told to stop their experiments. But if you work in a lab and you want to do something good for your community and you have to okay from your bosses, the WHO, um, the World Health Organization, actually released a PDF document that we'll link to that gives you exa exact instructions how to make your own sanitizer based off of ethanol and isopropanol. Um, in larger quantities so you can then um, adequate it and uh, hand out 100 milliliter bottles to people in need yeah and this is important that you should only follow the instructions for the who one and not use any of the other thousands of bullshit recipes yeah. going around on facebook one like, important thing that let's just they mention is like don't add like fragrances or colorants or anything um, they don't do anything. They can potentially dilute your product or cause allergic reactions, and you don't want that. You want just like the pure active ingredients, and that is um, a diluted alcohol solution to, I think in this case, it's like an 80% um, ethanol solution and a lower percentage of isopropanol, and both of them have been proven to work and um, yeah, kill off 75% yeah, isopropyl alcohol um, mixed with some glycerol for water retention and, and skin care um and follow that mm. um, yeah and just generally don't spread health advice yeah. from non-official organizations please guys yes i mean you all know that right you, yeah yeah you know that yeah yeah um so <laughs> <laughs> i have something about a kind of group of organisms i discovered i mean i didn't discover them i found out they existed it's a subclass called Copepoda. Copepoda. They were actually discovered in the 1840s, so a little bit before my time. But you should go and have a look at them. We'll put another link to a picture of them in the um, bio. But their name means Orfeet, which is because they have these little, like, fat little chunky thighs, which are basically oars on their feet. So um, they're a group of very small crustaceans. They're found pretty much everywhere <laughs> in fresh water and in salt water. So thick. Um, some... <laughs> They're thick. They have thick thighs. Um, you can find them like <laughs> drifting. You can find them at, like at the ocean floor. Um, they're even found in like bogs and swamps and inside bromeliads or pitcher plants. Um, and they're sometimes considered a biodiversity indicator, but mostly they got awesome thighs. Like <laughs> I don't know if <laughs> I don't I don't know actually know about using the word thick. It's not something that my generation. I just know it from memes. I just know that like uh, there there was. There was like a children's Wait, show. Wait, this also might be some slang that has been co-opted by white people, though. Probably, we should look into this. Um, but what what hasn't like? Yeah, but we still white people mean we're that terrible. We like we, <laughs> I I just know it from I've like this children's like cartoon where where like the guy orders a pizza and he wants it extra thick, and obviously people took it out of context and and now use that to reply to many different things, often in sexual context. Okay, in any case, um, we're sorry if we're using the inappropriate slang. Go look up Copepod on Wikipedia. There's a really beautiful picture yeah. of the little guys. Um, yeah. They have the cutest, fattest little thighs. It's basically like Yoram's baby's chunky little thighs look <laughs> like. So chunky. Um, but maybe even more gorgeous. Who knows? <laughs> um, I have, I think... Yeah, I think that's the last thing I, I want to say about uh, COVID-19 slash corona for today. And it's a sort of positive note because... 
as you might know, clubs and bars and things are closed now for a good reason. And um, the artists, uh, some of them come up with new ideas. And um, there's a thing called unitedwestream.berlin, which is a live music stream from different DJs in clubs that instead of playing in the clubs, they now stream the music uh, over the internet to people so they can have a good time at home. And uh, one of them is going right now. It's supported by like another, like uh, several different big um, network, TV networks and so on and I'm just looking at the website right now and they have for the upcoming four to five days they have every evening from 7 p.m. Um, to midnight Central European time they have streams of DJ sets and so on so if you want to have a good time at home don't go out like play one of these music streams at home and yeah have have a good time by yourself or with your roommates with your family and i think it's a very cool way to sort of keep the spirits up and also if you have some some money that you can spend consider donating to your artist friends or artists that you really like because a lot of concerts have been cancelled a lot of events have been cancelled a lot of the people who don't work in like proper regular jobs with contracts but in like freelance jobs or creative jobs they really suffer right now because of um, the all the gigs they can't play. So if you have some money to spare, consider donating it um, to like your favorite artists. And if you, I saw one of my friends shared that um, Bandcamp is is giving all of the proceeds, like 100% of proceeds, to artists. I think this weekend. I haven't confirmed that um, by another source, but you can check that out. That supporting um, artists fire yeah. them. But also, like, I mean, like, any local painters or, like, you know, yeah. any creators that you know, especially small business creators, now is a good time to support them. Yeah. Um, again, there's been indications, you can look it up from, like, the NHS or the WHO that it's less likely that things are transferred from packages. Um, but you can also be cautious with this if you want to. Um, but you can also share and you know use use other methods of supporting these people during the time. But it's going to hit them quite hard if if yeah. business goes down quite suddenly. Especially if you uh, had tickets for concerts and the concert has been cancelled, you have the right. Often they're very nice that you, they refund your money. But if you can afford it, and I know that not everybody can afford it, but if you can afford it, maybe don't refund your tickets. Just let it go because then uh, the money goes to the artists and the losses they make are not as severe. Um, so consider that if you have the option. A couple of final COVID stuff. There's a really nice um, visualization on the Washington Post about why outbreaks like coronavirus spread exponentially and how to flatten the curve. That's by Harry Stevens. It came out a couple of days ago. You should definitely go and check that out. It just has some really nice yeah, simulations which show the spread of something like a virus. And also I think the Atlantic is doing um, some nice coverage of COVID. So go and read um, their stuff as well. These are kind of reputable sources which you can kind of take their their information as it is without having to double research everything yes um i have something that's not related to the virus right now um i read an article on nature 
um, that they published a while ago now. I, I think I actually put it in my notes for a week or two that I wanted to bring it up to the podcast. Um, and now I finally read the whole thing. And it's about uh, controlled studies where they had a shadow team replicating while the study was going on the results of the sort of performance group so they had two research teams a performance team that is sort of the regular research team that got the funding to f like find new like do research answer questions and so on and they had a, a separate individual team that was called the shadow team um, that would replicate immediately key results of the performance team and they would work together they would exchange um, information and so on so that it could actually do their work um, and this article talks about like the the advantages and the pitfalls and everything of it and uh, I found it quite interesting to read that um, this the whole thing was was funded by DARPA the defense advanced research advanced research projects agency so it's like a um, defense technology military as associated um, funding so you take it with a grain of salt there but they have a lot of money to spend so they could actually sort of not not double fund they said between three to eight percent of the program's total funds went into the independent validation and verification work but i think it's a very interesting approach because uh this has been done or like this can be more easily done in other disciplines like physics mathematics or things where you have much clearer systems where you have a, a clearer link between the input and the output of your system but if you work in biology you probably made the the experience that even if you work with the same cell line as somebody else or the same organism as somebody else uh, your results might vary quite a bit and this is something that they that they experienced here as well so they did some synthetic biology projects and uh, realize that, uh, for example, if they buy chemicals that have the same name, like polyethylene glycol or fetal bovine mm -hmm. serum, um, but they buy them from different vendors, the results change. So if you want yep. to replicate a study and you buy it from, instead of vendor A, you buy it from vendor B, and both of them say it's like 99% clean polyethylene glycol, but one of the experiments works and the other doesn't. Um, that means that that goes to show, like that is linked to the different products that vendors have different qualities of product and um so they actually have a table of different sort of pitfalls that they encountered also about documentation so that when you say um, we grew this at 21 degrees celsius that it, it's much better to give a range so did you grow this between 20.5 and 21.5 or between 20 and 22 degrees celsius because this again changes the outcome of the experiment so yeah an interesting read about replication and how we can do this and how and especially also the the outcomes of it because the the results that i could get they were much more credible and they could yeah Build, draw much better conclusions from the things because they had an immediately second test for the thing so they trusted much more their own results and had better results and i think it also changes the way you work if you know that the things that you're doing will be tested pretty immediately by somebody else you might not like you might be more critical of your own work as well. And I think it's a very cool approach. Obviously, it, it needs more, it takes more resources to do research. But at the same time, the research that you get is probably of a higher quality than what we see often right now, where if you try to replicate another paper's work, 
you might run into troubles and it might be that you have different ingredients or different machinery but it might also be that their study just can't be replicated and you don't know you can't figure it out if you if you don't like closely run it side by side it's always very hard at least i mean that is something that concerns me that science becomes like i understand that replication is important and being able to reproduce results is important but if you set up then this is the new normal where you have to have replication immediately that does that is a significant cost yeah. for a lot of people so that's a bit concerning but yeah interesting and idea they say between uh, three and eight percent so given the but where are the personnel coming from i mean that's not I mean, it's a different, like in a different place, a different research group that also gets money, but they don't do all mm. of the experiments that the performance group does. They do the key oh, experiments. And so the performance group, they send, they send off, for example, a cell line off to the shadow group and um, tell them what they did and what, what reagents they used and everything. And then they try to replicate it in a different place, just as like key experiment. Mm. So if you would have like a larger explorative study where you test a ton of different genotypes or whatever, you don't have to do this twice. But if you find like a genotype and you do additional experiments on it, these additional experiments are then done twice. So it's it doesn't double the cost, but it, it is an increase about like maybe 10%, 20% of the cost will go up for funding research, which means in total less projects be funded on the same amount of money. But yeah. Mm. it's an interesting article uh, we'll link to it in the show notes it's uh, published on nature uh, it's called uh, a control trial for reproducibility uh, I have something about the baby dinosaur which probably all of you guys already saw I didn't um, see it's it, made me. some headlines oh um, there was a very very tiny dinosaur found in some amber so I think we've already done a, talk, a discussion about a bug that was found in amber we did a journal about that which it was a beetle which was probably involved in pollination was that correct yeah or yeah a bee? it had pollen stuck to its um, legs right and they could find see that yeah. in the, in the and they had evidence from its um how its mouth parts worked and it's that it was probably consuming the pollen as well i think as well as pollinating um anyway we did that a while back we'll put the link in the show notes um but recently they've found um a bit of uh, amber also from myanmar um which is almost 100 million years old and it has the skull of a tiny tiny little dinosaur which is kind of more of a bird than a dinosaur inside it so this um thing is 7.1 millimeters so less than one centimeter across mm -hmm. um and it's been um yeah given a new it's a new species it's 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 discovered um it's called the eye tooth bird um but go and go and look at the pictures so there's a pay there's a um a blog post about it on I fucking love science, but there's also press releases that kind of about it everywhere. If you look on the internet, um, I like on I fucking love science, they um, include a picture, like a reconstruction of this bird. So it has like, it looks really like a tiny bird, um, except that it has more of a crocodile mouth and it has teeth in its beak. And for some reason, also, they've given it, like, glowing red eyes. <laughs> and I just don't understand. Like, there's nothing about a dead bird preserved for 100 million years in amber, which can make you certain that it has evil red eyes. So I would like to know why it has red eyes. I have to admit, I didn't read the paper. Um, I didn't look into it. Why have they given this thing red eyes? And, like, 
it looks so nasty. Like, <laughs> it also has these eyes. Like, I don't know, the, the artist re- artistic rendering, it has eyes that follow you around the room <laughs> and the eyes are red. Like, <laughs> it's tiny. Why does it need to be evil? Like, I just don't need this in my life. Like, and it has this sort of overbite beak and <laughs> it looks like a Simpsons character. That's what reminds it me of. It looks like that tiny little dog. What's that little dog for with the overbite? Is it like a chihuahua? Yeah, something Maybe. like this. But anyway, yeah. No, but I'm thinking of like a cartoon dog specific. Anyway. Yeah, yeah it rem- um, rem- reminds me of the dog from The Simpsons. Okay. I think it has this like stupid look. Let me Google. No, I'm not thinking of Santa Liz Helper. I'm thinking of, anyway, it is not important. It is an evil looking tiny bird. So go and check that out for sure. It's very important that you go and look at that. And <laughs> um, then have nightmares. Good luck, guys. <laughs> yeah, it is terrifying. Last week, I realized, you know, like a bazoar, like from, from Harry Potter, this kind of stone that you find inside the belly of a goat usually, and it has magical healing properties, which can mm-hmm. save you from any poison. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I know yes. that. Okay, so a bazaar is the mouse, but it's also a type of goat. So there's like an animal called a bazaar. Uh-huh. So like, which I think is where the name came came from. So you can get a bazaar inside a bazaar. <laughs> and I was just wondering, like, if you put the bazaar bazaar into your goblet, would that have more protection against poison? <laughs> or do you first have to take the bazaar out of the bazaar and put only one of the bazaars into your goblet? And if so, like, do you have to decide which bazaar? Like, is, is only one of the bazaars magical? Like, it's, it's a philosophical question that I just can't answer. <laughs> like, um, put the bazaar in your drink and somebody's like trying to dunk like this giant goat. goat it's like, like, and it's like drowning. <laughs> um, yeah, I, exactly. I just imagine now like in Snape's potion class, um, somebody's sitting there with like a full grown, fully grown goat there. And it's like, oh yeah, I need this for my potion. <laughs> yeah, technically this is an Ibex, which is kind of like a wild goat's species thing okay it still belongs to the genus capra which is i mean you know capricorn it's like the goat genus so i think we're we're <laughs> in safe goat territory but it's an ibex um that it's, comes from iran iranian ibex it's it's a, it's a very good question um i think yeah i don't know if we can ever figure this out because if we ask jk rowling she will probably be saying like yeah harry was a goat all along like I didn't actually specify it, but he was a goat the entire time. <laughs> Yoram has problems with J.K. Rowling's revisionist <laughs> statements, huh? <laughs> she is very um, revisionist about her work. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, it's annoying, but she does it like with good meaning, right? Yes, I... Uh, I think the Hermione was a black woman was probably a bit ridiculous. <laughs> But I can, I can, I'm more willing to believe that she actually might have thought Dumbledore was gay. Like, she still chose not to say that explicitly, which is not super helpful. Yeah. Um, but I kind of can believe she thought that. Yeah. I just sometimes worry if it does more harm than good. If, because a common attack thing from people who don't get anything is, oh, yeah, they're just changing all of these like uh, the genders and they introduce diversity just for the point of introducing diversity and it's not not real and it ruins media and so on and these people who have the wrong opinion they get a lot of fuel by somebody calling after the fact and being like ah actually actually it's very diverse diverse what i wrote it's actually not that that white the reason i think she had good intentions is because um I think she was responding to somebody first saying it's stupid that in um, The Cursed Child, the actress who plays Hermione is black. So I think she was trying to def- 
um, defend the fact that they had chose to mm. like not just hire a white cast. That's that's what I think. I, I, okay. Again, there's still a lot of problems with that, and it's definitely not my place to say if this is right or wrong but i don't think she was saying actually i was really diverse this happened i think somebody was making a negative comment about the casting choices and then she was like well how do you even know that this wasn't what hermione like i think that's how it worked but you know whatever yeah i have like a general like question for the audience yes can i go for it um i was on bumble Mm -hmm. and somebody said in their profile I'm a vegetarian, but I don't shag avocados. Now I Googled it, I Urban Dictionary it, and I do not understand what it means. I, I, I know what the word shag means, I understand that, but I wanna know if there's a deeper meaning to shagging avocados. <laughs> Please write in and tell me, that is I, all. <laughs> I don't shag avocados. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're just being like deliberately dramatic, like people who like, are too millennial but i was like there must be something to this like what what is happening here the why is somebody i'm vegetarian but i don't shag avocados something like that but also it's like that thing where you know you know when the wine has written on the bottle delicious wine and you're like i shouldn't buy that wine because it's trying too hard to tell you that it's not disgusting yeah like, if it has to tell you why that it's do not you disgusting. have to explicitly tell me that you <laughs> yes. don't shag avocados like what's happened in your past that somebody f- like you feel the need to justify that you, you do not shag avocados an avocado at one you've point you probably shagged an, like you've made, almost made the full statement is i don't shag avocados anymore <laughs> I was listening to the um, a John Oliver segment on sex education again recently, and there's a statement um, which is, uh, most people will get HPV in their lifetime is both a true statement and something that somebody will tell you before they give you HPV. Yes. And I was like, that's just like, it's the same thing. <laughs> like, yes. This is the best line that has ever existed on any TV show ever. It just <laughs> made me very happy. <laughs> Alrighty, I yeah. think it's time for us to go, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, so please follow us on our social media. Um, on Twitter, you can talk to me. I'm at Plants and at Plants Pipettes on Twitter. <laughs> on Facebook and Instagram, you can talk to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. You can find our things on our blog where we publish about two articles a week. Um, www.plantsandpipettes.com And obviously the podcast every week that you're listening to right now. Please subscribe. Rate us on iTunes. Uh, that would help us. Give us an, uh, a nice review. And if you want to give us feedback, you can always reach out to us. And that's all. Oh, you have to say the opening and closing music is Caravania by Philip Gross. Is yes. that correct? Yes. <laughs> And goodbye guys. Goodbye. Until next week. Bye. Peace.